0: to God quite the reversal of fortunes Amanda thank you for reading that scripture for us not only was it long but there were quite a few Persian names to pronounce well done Uh, friends it's great to be with you this morning my name is Charlie Dunn and we are in a series through the season of Lent leading up to Easter uh, looking at what historically have been known as the seven deadly sins and if you were with us last Sunday, you know that I introduced the series, talked about why we are doing a series on the seven deadly sins. And if you missed that, would encourage you to go back and, and listen to that if you want help answering that question. Why would we be looking at these sins together? And then on Wednesday night at our Ash Wednesday service, John preached a great message looking at the sin of gluttony. Uh, and talking about how this practice of fasting, which is uh, often a part of the season of Lent, can actually be a really helpful uh, way to break the sometimes almost spiritual power that, that food can have over our hearts. Um, but today, uh, we're gonna talk about the sin known as vain glory, And that's not a word that we use very often. Uh, you know, if you see different lists of the seven deadly sins, some of them will say vainglory, others will say pride. Uh, But I'm persuaded uh, that really pride is the sin at the root of all sin. Uh, It's the sin at the root of all of these other vices, this turning in upon oneself. And so I want to look more specifically at one of the manifestations of pride, namely vain glory. And if you wonder, is this a sermon for me? Um, Think back to that that song, maybe, I think it came out probably when I was in maybe the second or third grade, that uh, Alanis Morissette song with the lyric, uh, you're so vain you probably think the sermon is about you. Maybe it was song is about you. Either way, it's true. It is about you and it is about me. Even this morning, you know, I felt like our our kids' check-in was just a little more chaotic. We were supposed to have that screen working again. I was thinking, you know, I want people to look and think that our church, you know, is competent and organized and that that vain glory, I could feel that that swelling up uh, within me. It's a sermon for all of us um, because all of us uh, end up at times Uh, in that place where we have this this unhealthy, uh, excessive desire for the recognition and approval of other people, this fixation on how we are seen and perceived. Uh, You know, a couple of months ago, some of you might remember, uh, John uh, preached a sermon where he used an illustration from the TV show, Ted Lasso. Any Ted Lasso fans? Uh, Quite a few. Okay, great. So you'll remember this. So uh, John talked about how in the first season of that show, there's this character uh, named Nate. Nate is the equipment manager for this uh, British soccer or football team, depending on where you're from. And, And and Nate is kind of overlooked, he's ignored, but when Coach Lasso comes in, uh, he treats him with respect and dignity. Eventually he discovers that he's very uh, knowledgeable about the game and and has some great ideas for play calling. And so by the end of the season, he gets elevated to become an assistant coach on the team. And and John talked about this really sweet scene where the team um, celebrates and embraces Nate in his new role. Uh, But in season two, Uh, There is this moment where in the midst of a game, um, Nate suggests this this play call at the end of the game that leads to a very surprising victory for the team. And in his press conference afterwards, Coach Lasso gives all of the credit to Nate for the brilliant play call. And so as a result, all of these sports commentators and pundits are, are writing about and talking about Nate's brilliance in this play call. And there's this scene where you see Nate sitting alone in his office, door closed, because he probably wouldn't want anyone to see him, and this would be embarrassing for him. He's sitting there on his phone, and he's just scrolling. Right, he's just taking in all of the affirmation, all of the interest, all of the attention. It's like he cannot get enough of it. You know, when the Apostle Paul talks about vainglory in the New Testament, the word that he uses, uh, has the, the notion, the Greek word has the notion of like an overinflated balloon. And it's as if Nate's ego just keeps getting more and more inflated when all of a sudden he reads one comment that is critical. And it says, Yeah, this guy might have called a really good play, but he's still a loser. And all of a sudden, it's like, like the pin prick, the balloon completely pops. His ego is deflated, and right afterwards we see one of the common effects of vainglory when it's cast us under its spell is he runs into the guy who's the new equipment manager for the team, and he just berates him. He belittles him, he, he treats him so badly, and then there's this, this player on the team who's been struggling with his confidence, he's been underperforming, and he comes to Nate for advice, and instead of giving him advice and encouragement, Nate just really critiques him and tries to put him in his place, maybe thinking that will make him feel better about himself. And, and maybe some of you, you've, you've been in that place before where you've responded to criticism uh, in that way towards others, or maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. But I think what we see in that scene with Nate very uh, profoundly is just the the, the joy-sucking, uh, relationship-severing uh, effects of vain glory uh, when we have this, this excessive fixation uh, upon ourselves. Uh, you see it in our culture today, um, uh, teenagers who are concerned about you know, reaching a million subscribers on their YouTube channel, or, you know, how many followers you have on TikTok or Instagram. You see it among professionals on LinkedIn when we try to, to project a, a, a resume, a career resume that makes us look more successful. Uh, certainly you see it in, in posting uh, pictures from, from glamorous vacations, or you see it in pastors. Uh, who are concerned about their congregations, thinking that their sermon is engaging and insightful. I don't relate with that one, but <laughs> I'm sure there are other pastors who do. And, and, and what happens um, when, when vain glory gets a hold of our hearts is, is we have this, this preoccupation with our image. We wanna be seen as competent, as attractive, as successful, as really having our lives together. Now, to be fair, let me say this, not all not all giving of glory nor all desire for glory is inherently sinful or inherently vain glory. You know, the word glory in the Bible simply means for something good or beautiful to be shown, to be made known. So Psalm chapter eight, for instance, says that, that God is, is the one who is, is most glorious, that God is the one who has made known and shown his beauty and his goodness. But we're also told that, that God has imbued human beings with glory as well, that he has made people in his image, and so therefore there are things that are praiseworthy in human beings too. I have a friend of mine who's a pastor of a, a church where there was a Sunday when the choir sang this really beautiful anthem. And so at the end of it, almost instinctively, all that he could do was just begin to applaud, and the congregation joined him in that applause. And, you know, after the service, one of his elders came up and he, he, he rebuked him, he chided him. He said, You know, you never should applaud for, for people in a worship service because all of the glory should be given to God. But, but I, I don't think that's necessarily right or, or true. I think it can be a both end that we ultimately want to glorify God, but we can celebrate and praise glorious things we see in other people too. You know, so like when an athlete makes like a diving, amazing catch, we cheer, and rightly so. Or when somebody plays a beautiful piece of music, or when a mom that cares for her children day after day, often going unseen, right? That should be praised. Or when when soldiers in the Ukraine are, are willing to risk their lives to defend the, the, the freedom of their country and their fellow countrymen, we, we want to celebrate when people engage in acts of virtue and sacrifice and compassion, when students put on a great show or when they, they complete their degree. We should cheer. We should celebrate and give praise for those actions, and it's, it's right to do so. In fact, I would suggest one of the best ways often to uproot our fixation upon ourselves and our own vainglory is often when we're willing to call out and to celebrate that which is beautiful and good and true that we see in the lives of other people. It's often right to praise Others and I think there is even something right and very human in the desire for those good and courageous and beautiful things that we do to be seen, to be recognized, to be made known. You know, we've got a, a one-year-old son and he's just started walking. And, and when Patton was taking his first steps, he would, he would take a few steps and then he would turn around and he would look and it was like, dad, are you seeing this? Are you watching? Like, this is so amazing. And of course, right, I wanna say yes, buddy, that's awesome, way to go, you're walking. And I think whenever somebody takes courageous steps, you know, whether literal steps or uh, in, in whatever other regard, when somebody takes a step of courage, we want to praise that. And I think there's something inside of us that, that delights in receiving that recognition. That's not a bad thing. But what we do see so clearly in this story about Haman. And in some ways he's a case study, maybe kind of in an amplified sense, but what we see in Haman is that not all desire for honor is honorable. And not all craving of glory is a good craving or seeking of glory, but there is a a sort of vain glory that we see in this story of Haman. So I wanna look at that and I wanna ask three questions together, here they are. So first, when does our desire for glory become vainglory? Secondly, why is that so deadly? You might say, well, I mean, what is it so bad that people feel good about themselves? I mean, why is it deadly to, to be in the spell of vainglory? And then finally, how do we begin to uproot the hold that this sin can have over our hearts? So let's walk through these three together. So first, first, how do you know when your desire for glory has become vain glory? And if we want a bit of a context for this story, so uh, the Jewish people are living in exile in the land of Persia. And uh, this is the beginning of the 5th century BC. Xerxes is the king of Persia, the most powerful empire in the world. And he elevates this man named Haman to really be second in command over the kingdom. And now all the other nobles are required to pay him homage and to bow before him. Now, but you might've noticed, this is a little bit subtle, you might've noticed we're told in verse two, that the reason why all of these nobles will bow and pay homage to Haman is because the king commanded them to do so. Now think about that. In a culture where it's just almost instinctive to pay deference and respect, especially in a hierarchical culture, the fact that the king has to command them to treat Haman in this way might tell you something about his character. The biblical writers are often very subtle Um, brilliant in their subtlety. So maybe they're saying these people don't really have a lot of respect for this guy, Haman, um, but they're willing to bow, they're willing to follow the command, but there's one guy who won't. Uh, His name is Mordecai. He refuses to bow before Haman. And in the way that Haman responds to this perceived offense and slight to his honor, I think we see these three ways that our desire for glory becomes vainglory. And these categories, by the way, I was very helped by Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices. I got these categories from her, and I want to apply them to Haman. So here they are. First, our desire for glory becomes vain glory when we seek glory in the wrong things, in vain things, empty things, things that really don't matter. So you see that in Haman in chapter 5, verse 11. Remember, he's gathered with his family and friends, and we're told that he boasts to them about what? his vast wealth, his many sons, all of the ways that the king has honored and elevated him. And of course, we might be prone um, at at different points to do the same, right? Maybe to to try to dominate a conversation to to keep the focus and attention on us. Or or maybe we name drop um, to try to show, you know, I know this important or influential person or um, to show off our wealth, or maybe it's through a, a fancy home or a fancy car, we 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 look to these vain things um, uh, to derive a sense of our own significance, our own uh, glory, and, and we can boast in them. And even for us as Christians, for those of us who are Christians, you know, maybe you would say, "Yeah, I know, I know that that looks are fleeting." I know that, that your job title is not equivalent to your character. I know that my worth is not in the things that I own, and yet we can still be as sort of tempted or prone um, to chase after our glory in these empty or vain things that the scriptures would say really don't matter, not of lasting significance. So so it becomes vain glory when we seek glory in the wrong thing. Secondly, it becomes a vain glory when we seek glory in the wrong way. Um, That is in a way that might misuse or mislead other people in order to get that glory. And certainly we see that with Haman, right? He's ready to kill, he's ready to murder. Mordecai and his people in order to derive that sense of glory. And I would wager that most of you probably, you know, the last time that somebody treated you as if you um, were uh, not intelligent or uh, insulted your looks or maybe made you feel uncool, I would imagine you probably did not um, start to hatch a, a murder-revenge plot to regain your sense of honor and glory. But, but nevertheless, we, we can um, chase our glory in wrong ways. Uh, we have a, a middle school teacher in this congregation who um, has shared about um, various cheating scandals that um, erupt in his classroom. And presumably, why, why do those students cheat? Well, they cheat because they, they want um, to, to, to have their, um, their parents or their, their teachers, you know, think more highly of them because of their uh, better grades. Or, or you think about what we mentioned before, maybe when you're applying for a job, so we, we embellish our resume, um, to look more successful, to look more accomplished than we really are, we mislead in that way. Or maybe some of you have been in a workplace environment before where you've seen you know, somebody um, assign blame to somebody else for something they did wrong. Uh, maybe assign that to an employee to save their own face. Maybe you've been on the other side uh, of that. So a number of ways that we can mislead or misuse other people for the sake of our own uh, glory. Um, maybe maybe a specific way to think about this is even when we seek glory um, for shameful behavior And that kind of starts maybe middle school high school age, you start kind of reveling in, in who is who is the the baddest you know who 's breaking more rules there 's a sense of of pride and glory that comes from that I remember, and this is you know um, uh, maybe maybe a, a little bit of a uh, just a just a sad example, I guess, of this. When I was in college, I played on the tennis team. Right when I got to the locker room, I remember seeing there was a whiteboard in the locker room with all the names of the players on the team, and there was like a tally next to each name. And you might assume, is that like who won the most matches or hit the most serves in? I don't, I don't know, something tennis-related, but it wasn't. Um, it was a way to track who had hooked up uh, with the most girls um, on campus, And there was an expectation, I'm not kidding, there was an expectation that you were supposed to email all of the details uh, to the rest of the team whenever you did. And uh, we're gonna talk about lust uh, in a few weeks. (laughs) Maybe right towards the end of the series. But friends, that's not lust, right? Lust is where you're like attracted to somebody and you want them for for them, uh, even just maybe for their, their beauty. This is just vain glory. Right? It's just it's just boasting, it's bragging rights for, for who um, could have the most sexual conquest. And, and so we, we, we see um, that, that our desire for glory, it becomes uh, vain glory when we're willing to seek it in these wrong ways. But then finally, the last way that our desire for glory becomes vain glory, and, and, and in some sense, this is the most common. In some ways, it's actually the worst, is when we seek glory for the wrong end. What does that mean? It means when we're seeking glory in a way where we do not want to acknowledge or give credit for the fact that the good things in our lives ultimately have come from God, that they really are a credit to him more than they are to us. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, what do you have that you did not receive? You ever ever thought about that before? You know, so much of our lives, where we are born, the family that we are born into, the opportunities that are in front of us, our our gifts and our abilities. You know, even if you say, yeah, but I worked hard and I, I, I did all of these things. That may be true, but you did them with the intellect that God gave you, with the health he gave you, with the opportunities he gave you. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast in it as though you did not, right? It's that temptation to, to, to take credit for ourselves for that which really is more of a credit to God. You see that with Haman, don't you? One of the things that he boasts in in chapter five are his many sons, did you notice that? And in Haman's Persian culture in that day, sons were a greater status symbol than daughters. We reject that as those who believe in the gospel of Jesus. And yet, just think about this for a moment. Haman boasts in his many sons, but don't you think the apostle Paul could ask him that that question and say, well, Haman, did you choose the gender of your children? Or or, or are you responsible for the fact that they were conceived or for the fact that they were able to grow to to the point of childbirth or that they've been sustained in their lives after childbirth? Well, no, no, no. That's not a credit to Haman. It's interesting for me as a a new dad just to think about um, the moment that Patton was born um, in the hospital room, the moment that the nurse handed him to me and I got to hold him. And, And there's just this sense of, of wonder and gratitude and worship, just thinking, wow, this this new little life, it's a miracle. I get to be his dad, what a gift that is. And and, and, and the feeling within me was gratitude, it was worship. But you know, it's not long before you start, you know, wanting to show off baby pictures as if the way that your child looks is a credit to you, or you, know, you start bragging about their sports accomplishments or their, their grades in school, or you remember those honor roll bumper stickers? I mean, everybody wants to just like key that car, I think, when, when they see that or what job your kid gets, or where they go to college. And it's not long before parents can begin to find their sense of identity, their sense of of self-worth, seeking approval and recognition in the accomplishments of their children. And It's not even so much about praising their kids, is it? It's certainly not about praising God. It becomes this vain glory. And and I think you see this especially in Haman, um, in the way that he reacts to Mordecai's unwillingness to bow before him. Because why is it that Mordecai won't bow before Haman? Right, it's not just that he may not really respect him. Uh, part of the reason why Haman wants to not just kill Mordecai, he wants to kill all of the Jewish people is because what did the Jewish people believe? They believe that there was only one true God who was worthy of their worship. So they would not worship a human being as God, which in many ways, that's what it meant to bow before him the same way that the Christians Uh, in the first century, refused to worship the emperors, Uh, Mordecai will not worship a human being as if he is God. And so in many ways, what Haman wants is he wants the glory for himself that is only rightly due to God. And and before we leave this point, we should notice just the fact that um, that is not unique um, to to vain, glorious, uh, ancient pagan rulers. That can be true even for us as Christians. You know, a lot of what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount is about religious people doing apparently good religious things, praying, serving, preaching, you know, giving all of these things. We can can do them more with a focus on the praise and approval of others rather than on wanting to glorify God. So we can seek uh, glory for the wrong end, and it becomes vainglorious when we do. And some of us know that dynamic in our hearts. We, we are well aware of the way in which when we are operating from that place of vainglory, there, there's constant insecurity, how it steals your joy. There's no contentedness. We know the, the deadly effects. But I think others of us maybe would say, okay, yeah, I know it's not ideal to operate out of vainglory, but isn't it better than feeling bad about yourself? I mean, Positive self-esteem, isn't that an important thing? And, and, and yeah, so somebody brags a little too much or somebody is, is doing their good things for the recognition of others. I mean, is that really that deadly? And I think the answer is yes. Let me tell you why, shockingly. It's deadly both to bodies and it's deadly to souls. Um, we see the way it's deadly to bodies in this story, don't we? There's another part that we didn't read where Haman goes before the king. The king's just lost a bunch of money on an unsuccessful war with Greece, and so Haman comes with this proposal. Hey, there's this group of people. They're not keeping your laws. If we would allow the Persians to go and basically kill them and take their stuff, plunder them, then we could sort of restock the Persian treasury. The, the, the king doesn't even ask who this group of people is. He just says, okay, go for it and do it. And when that happens, like thousands of Jewish people are are killed. Their lives are lost. Ultimately, the Jewish people as a whole are spared, um, in part because of Mordecai, in part because of Esther. That's later in the story. And yet, people die because of Haman's vain glory. Haman himself dies eventually because of his vain glory. And we're seeing this play out in our world today, aren't we? I mean, John prayed for the Ukraine earlier in our service. And, and, and for those of you who have, have, have gone back and have just tried to understand um, Vladimir Putin and sort of what is motivating and, and driving him into this war, you know, one of the, the most common theories is that, is that he wants to restore um, the pride. And one of his favorite sayings is to get Russia up off of its knees, back to the, the glory, the pride that they had in the, the, the territory of the Soviet Union. And we just see vain glory driving people from their homes, millions of people, people being killed because of vainglory today. And even when vainglory doesn't actually kill bodies, it absolutely will kill your soul. I mean, look at at Haman. Think about this. This guy has it all. Right? Wealth and honor and power. He's second in command of the most powerful empire in the world. And yet in chapter 5, he says to his friends and family, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. When you're under the spell of vain glory, it does not matter how much affirmation you get. As long as somebody doesn't like you, as long as you get some criticism... You, 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 you are unsatisfied. There's no peace. There's no contentment. There's no joy. He's driven by anger. I, I want to suggest to you this morning, friends, as good as it feels sometimes to, to be fixated on ourself, as good as it felt for, for Nate to just scroll through all of those, those comments, actually, it, it is really uh, destructive and enslaving when we're looking at life through the lens of self. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a great Um, It was really first a sermon that was published as a pamphlet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I would highly recommend it to you. It's a really short little read. It helped me to begin to see that self-praise, boasting, and self-pity, always feeling uh, like you're undervalued or overlooked, they can actually come from the same root source, namely this fixation on self and, and Tim Keller, in this, this little book, he quotes from an interview with Madonna in Vogue magazine. I feel like I can really relate with Madonna, <laughs> at least in this aspect, not, not in a lot of other ways. But, you know, Madonna was, was like the most successful, sold more albums than anybody else in, in history. And yet, listen to this. Here's what she says in this interview. She says, what drives her in her work is the fear of being mediocre. She says, I push past one spell of it and discover myself a special human being. Maybe she wins a Grammy. That's pretty impressive. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. It doesn't matter, friends, how much affirmation you get. Our our ego's insatiable. There's gonna be more and more longing for for that affirmation. And then, like Nate, if you you get criticized, right, it can completely deflate you. Uh, Or even if you're not criticized, like Madonna says, it doesn't last long. It's not long before you feel like you're no longer special again. Vainglory will steal your joy. It will steal your contentment. It will hurt your relationships. It makes you less human. You know, you're you're never more human than when you're compassionate, when you're thinking about life through somebody else's lens, when you're willing to put yourself into their shoes. Haman can't do that. He can't think about the pain he's about to inflict on all of these people because he's under the spell of vainglory. It's deadly. It's destructive. So how do we uproot it? How do we begin to to, to be freed from the power of this vice in our lives? And and there are some practical things we could talk about. We named one of them already. Whenever you can praise and celebrate somebody else, especially somebody, you know, we'll talk about envy next week, but especially somebody that you might see as a a rival, that practice is a really good way to uproot it whenever you're criticized to be able to ask what can i learn from this criticism maybe to try to ask trusted friends is there anything i need to hear in that criticism the practice of gratitude and writing down reasons why you're thankful to god for the blessings in your life corporate worship or worship when you're singing worship songs at the start of your day nothing gets our eyes off of ourselves more than than worship these are really practical things you can do um to to, to fight vainglories hold. But the number one thing, the most powerful way to really uproot. Um, vainglory in your heart is what we see here in in chapter six right at the end of this story so here is Haman right he's he's gonna go see King Xerxes he does not know that King Xerxes has just been up all night reading the annals of the king he recognizes that Mordecai has never been honored and so Haman comes in to see King Xerxes King Xerxes says what should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor Now, big shocker here, right, because Haman looks at life so much through the lens of himself, he just assumes, of course, he's talking about me. He wants to honor me. And so um, he begins to give this plan. He says, you should uh, take your own robes, robes that the king has worn, and you should put them on this person. He should wear the king's robes, ride on this horse of somebody leading him through the city, saying, this is what is done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Now, what's the big deal about the robes? The thing about the robes is that to to receive the king's own robes was not just a way for the king to honor somebody, but actually a way to say, I love you. I delight in you. So think about what Haman wants out of this. He's thinking to himself, right? if, if, If people could see that I am somebody who somebody as great as King Xerxes, if somebody as great as King Xerxes delights in me, honors me in that way, then I will know my value. I will know what an important person I am and everybody else will know my value and what an important person I am. And and, you know, there's something human in that, right? That's not all bad. That's not all wrong. Uh, There's this quote from J.R.R. Tolkien. He says, the praise of the praiseworthy is its own reward. Meaning for somebody who is is a really great, praiseworthy, amazing person to praise you, to delight in you, in some sense, that's what we're chasing after often in romantic relationships, right? Somebody you're attracted to, you're like, man, if I had that person thinking highly of me, then I would know I was valuable. And and see, that's that's what Haman is seeking here. If somebody as great as King Xerxes were to honor me, I would know my worth. Well, of course, there's this, this shocking response, right? This reversal of fortunes that happens because um, the king says, well, that's great, let's do all of that, but we're gonna do it for Mordecai, not for you. And, and remember, he was planning to actually do this public humiliation to impale Mordecai, but now all of a sudden, Mordecai is the one who's being honored and Haman is the one you know, leading the horse. And it's this shocking reversal of fortune. Now, why does that uh, help us to uproot the power of vainglory in our hearts? Well, just think about this uh, through the lens of the gospel. Um, and I was helped in thinking in this way by, by a sermon Tim Keller once preached on, on Esther 6. Think about this through the lens of the gospel, this great reversal of fortunes that takes place. Haman is not so much wrong in wanting to be honored by this great person, but he's seeking that honor from the wrong king. There is a greater king and a king who honors us, who praises us, who delights in us. And he does this through this this reversal of fortunes. Think about Jesus gave up his honor. He gave up his glory. He was impaled, as it were, the way in which Mordecai was going to be. Jesus went to the cross. He lost the father's approval. Why? Because he was bearing our sin. He was taking our shame upon himself. Why did he do that? so he can put his own robes on us. That's what it means to be covered in Jesus' righteousness. That now, when you trust in Jesus, God delights in you the same way that he delights in his eternal son. And friends, there's nothing more powerful to get us out of vainglory's spell than when you look up and you see Jesus there on that cross being humiliated, suffering, shamed, In your place, nothing humbles you out of your vainglory like that. On the other hand, nothing lifts up your spirits more than to remember that the reason he did that was because of his love for you. And now God delights in you the way that he delights in Jesus. We all long to be loved and delighted in, but that, friends, is a lasting, secure source of glory. That affirmation does not change. When you know that that's where your value and worth comes from, that God delights in you the way he delights in Jesus, you can be freed from the power of vain glory to have to chase that approval and recognition in everyone else. So let's pray that God would grant us more of that freedom as we come to the Lord's table together this morning.